Pachana. Um, so there's a couple of things that strike you during a service before you are due to stand up and either lead it or preach it. I wasn't too sure whether Jeff swore to the bishop or at the bishop. Was, was it? <laughs> and September the 1st is a great day to get married. Christine and I were married on September the 1st. So it's a wonderful day. And Sue, I'm sure, will have a great day. So we're about halfway through our series. Uh, we're looking at these Old Testament books of Exodus and Genesis, or Genesis first, of course, and then Exodus. And we've looked at a whole series of key individuals, uh, individuals like Adam and Eve, Noah, then at a family, as a family developed from Abraham through Isaac and uh, Jacob, who, of course, was renamed Israel, and the nation of Israel comes from him, of course, and the nation of Israel is the nation chosen by God. Joseph's story took us into Egypt and the oppression of the Israeli nation as slaves, and the birth of Moses and his calling to set God's chosen people free, and all that flowed from that. Last week, Claire looked at what became a turning point for this bunch of escaping slaves, as God begins to transform them into a unique community, a nation set apart and called to be different from all other nations around them, as indeed are we as individuals called to be the chosen people now. And today we're going to look at the fundamental part of that transformation, which you may have gathered is the Ten Commandments. On either side of me, the banners that we put up each week try to reflect the theme of what we're doing. So we've got um, the uh, banner there for the Ten Commandments, Moses reaching up into the cloud, and we've got two banners for the Holy Spirit, which we're going to come back to at the end, as well as some of the earlier banners from our earlier conversation that Christine has put up. The... um, Ten Commandments are a set of biblical principles relating to worship and ethics. Ethics and morals relate to right and wrong conduct. While they are sometimes used interchangeably, I think ethics usually refer to rules provided by an external source, like codes of conduct in our workplaces, or as in this case, principles of religion. Whilst morals flow from those rules and refer to individuals' own principles regarding right and wrong. Everyone, of course, is a person of faith, seeing the world through the prism of their beliefs and putting their trust in either their religious or secular, atheist, humanist or any other code of faith. And they usually have ethical systems and moral principles which determine how they behave, behave in relationships make personal and business decisions, react to issues like war and conflict, poverty, wealth, inequality, and so on, for good or ill. The story around the commandments and the associated laws and rituals covers most of the rest of the book of Exodus and flows through Leviticus, through Numbers, and on into Deuteronomy, where, 40 years after they've set out from Egypt, Moses summons the generation who are about to enter the long-awaited promised land on Joshua. And he retells them the story, the whole story, from their escape from slavery and reaffirms the commandments and all the other laws. And that all begins in Exodus 19, exactly three months after leaving Egypt, when the people of Israel arrive at Mount Sinai and set up camp, which Claire discussed last week. Amidst thunder, lightning and thick cloud, God speaks to the people... And then Moses climbs the mountain and receives a raft of instructions before being handed the Ten Commandments inscribed, we are told, at the end of chapter 31 by the finger of God himself 
onto two tablets of stone. Moses was up in Mount Sinai for 40 days before he came down. And he found the people engaged in a mass orgy around a golden calf. More of which next week, so come back because it could be interesting. And uh, as he comes down, he's so angry with what he sees that he throws those two tablets down on the ground and smashes them. They're replaced later in chapter 34. And they're put into the Ark of the Covenant, which eventually ends up, of course, in Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. The question of what finally happens to the Ark, and with it the the stone tablets on which the Ten Commandments are written, is the subject, of course, of much speculation. And the occasional movie, like Raiders of the Lost Ark, which I thought was rather good, actually. Some believe the Ark is still hidden somewhere underneath the city of Jerusalem. Some believe that it was, they were taken away, or it was taken away, the Ark was taken away, by either the Babylonians or the Romans when they sacked the city. One theory, somewhat improbably, I have to say, I watched uh, on television while I was away travelling recently, and it suggested that the Ark is, has been taken to a town called Aksum in Ethiopia, where it, st- it stays even today, guarded by a couple of Ethiopian priests. I have to say I find that pretty improbable, but the truth is we'll probably never know where they are. But we can at least remind ourselves exactly what they consisted of. And Ted is going to come and read to us from Exodus. Our reading comes from um, Exodus chapter 20, and it can be found on page 77 on the church Bibles, which are at the end of the rows, if anybody wants to read them there. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the parents. To the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days shall you labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. 
you shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife, or his male or female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbour. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and spoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will, we will listen to you, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to you, Ted. Thank you. Let's just pray for a moment, shall we? Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for what you teach us through it. We've just heard the the people were fearful, having heard your voice as you laid out these commandments. And Lord, we pray that uh, we would take these words seriously. As we try to interpret them and look at them in the light of Christ and in the light of what you are calling us to be, we pray that when we leave this place, we would try to serve you better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Ten Commandments, I think, are all about fundamental relationships setting out the basics about belief, about worship, and about life, the sanctity of God himself, and the sanctity of marriage and family life, property and truth. God uses them to reveal his moral character and establish the foundations for what was to be Israel's distinctive ethic and the morality that flows from that. They were to be what separated God's people from other tribes and nations around them. And just as the God of Israel was very different to the Egyptian gods, so the laws, the social and judicial system for his chosen nation was to be very different too. And it all starts from a recognition of who God is. The Israelis have been slaves for several hundred years in Egypt where there were many gods and many idols carved out of wood or sculpted in stone. And of course we can still see some of those if we visit that part of the world today. Each represented a different aspect of life and it was very common to worship as many gods as you could in order to cover all of the bases and try to get the maximum number of blessings. And up to then, maybe many of the people of Israel saw the Lord as just one more to add to the list. But when he said that they were to worship only him and have no other gods, that was different, that was revolutionary as he was making it clear, too, that he didn't want to be represented in any way that reduced his greatness by making him into an object that they would imagine they could control. He is invisible, without form, and he cannot be represented by any man-made object. Moses reminds them of this when, in Deuteronomy chapter 4, he recounts these events at Sinai. The Lord, he said, spoke to you out of the fire... And you heard the sound of words, but saw no form. There was only a voice. And when the Samaritan woman asked Jesus where she should worship the Lord, he told her that God is spirit, 
and his worshippers must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is not confined to traditional places of worship. So when Paul teaches the Gentiles in Acts chapter 17, he tells them that the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built with hands. And we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skills. The great Old Testament prophet Isaiah reveals the nonsense of worshipping idols when he tells us that a craftsman takes wood home for burning and warms himself, he kindles a fire and bakes bread on it, but then he also uses some of the wood to fashion a god and worship it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. He prays to it and says, Save me, for you are my God. We may smile at such stupidity, but in the same way, money, fame, work, pleasure, all too easily these and many other things may become our gods as we fashion them into idols and look to them to save us. So, one God only, no idol worship, no abuse, misuse, or dishonor of his name. He then insists that they do not allow people to suffer as they had done under the harsh regime in Egypt, forced to work continuously seven days a week. There was to be a day of rest for everyone, including the servants and foreigners and even the animals. Because all... The, sorry, and even the animals, to allow time to deepen relationships with him and with each other, and to be refreshed physically, mentally, and emotionally. If God himself needed a break after creation, then so did they. A lesson that perhaps our secular and atheistic world has forgotten. And beyond all of that, they were to honour their parents, who are part of the structure of authority, and not murder because all human beings are created in God's image and no one has the right to take another person's life outside of the law. Not to commit adultery, because that breaks the covenant relationship of marriage. And not to destroy their relationships with others through stealing, through false accusations, through lust, through greed, being envious of what others have. Because all of those make for social instability and lead to corrosive desires that undermine good relationships. Human relationships must be built on honesty and truth, not on coveting or craving for what others, what others have. No society built on false relationships can survive the trouble that flows from deceit or lies, corruption, exploitation, violent relationships, intimidation or a lack of respect. So in a raft of associated laws that flow from the Ten Commandments and follow it in the book of Exodus, the nation of Israel was therefore to weigh the scales fairly in business because God is a God of justice and they were to treat strangers with the same kindness that the Lord showed them. They were once strangers in a strange land so there was to be no unhealthy, narrow nationalism. In other words, God's standards were to be applied evenly to all even to those who did not follow him. The commandments therefore cover every possible human relationship with God, with the immediate family, the people of Israel, and the wider community and society. 
But it's pretty clear throughout the Old Testament that the people of Israel failed to live up to both the letter and the spirit of the Ten Commandments and the other laws that Moses introduced, and they suffered for it. The Old Testament prophets had to continually strip everything back to basic principles as they applied them to the moral failures of the day. All of them were savagely critical of hypocrisy. They constantly echoed the law's deep concern for social justice, for protecting the weak. Amos and Hosea flayed those who oppressed the poor, accepted bribes or used false weights and measures. Isaiah and Hosea were dismissive of all those who tried to hide their moral failures behind a facade of religious observance. Ezekiel was at pains to point out that in God's sight, everybody is morally responsible for what they get up to. No one could simply shelve the blame for their wrongdoing on their heredity or their environment. And Micah famously declared that what the Lord required of us is to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Trying to keep the law for many became an end in itself, policed by those who saw themselves as its guardians, like the equivalent of the commissariats in the communist era or the thought police in the Middle East today. In Jesus' day, the Sadducees, the Pharisees and the elders of the law knew the words of the law backwards. But like the Old Testament prophets, Jesus condemned them universally for their lack of genuine understanding reserving his most stinging rebukes for their wrong attitudes of mind and heart, their moral blindness, their callousness, their pride, their hypocrisy. Whilst he often referred to the law, Jesus didn't teach it as a lawyer, stressing that he hadn't come to do away with the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. He didn't just affirm a long list of rules, but revealed and reaffirmed God's character and the motives behind the laws. During his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explicitly refers to the prohibitions against murder and adultery. And when asked by the rich young man what he needed to do to get eternal life, Jesus actually repeats five of the Ten Commandments. But then he adds that the young man should love his neighbor as himself. And later he reduces all of the commandments to just two sentences. The first and greatest being to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Followed by the second, to love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, he said, hang on these two commandments. The New Testament brings with it someone who represents all that God has been attempting to teach his chosen people. Love, mercy, and grace. In one of his best-known parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus cuts across all difference. God's love isn't in response to something attractive in the one to be loved, or to the kind of love that is limited to members of a particular group, like family or clan or tribe. True neighborly love, he says, is evoked by need, not merit. It doesn't look for returns, and it extends to anyone, irrespective of race, creed, or color. In other words, he universalized love. And he constantly put his finger on the thoughts and the attitudes behind our actions. Those who nurse private grudges or a hatred towards their neighbor or who mentally undress a woman in lust 
can't evade moral blame by pleading that they haven't broken the letter of the law. On the two occasions that adultery is brought to his attention, he masterfully turns the whole debate around, highlighting the bad motives behind the critics. Even when a woman is caught in the act of adultery, he simply asks those without sin to cast the first stone. He did, of course, tell the woman caught in adultery that she should go and sin no more. But on issues of relationships, divorce, murder, money and giving, prayer and fasting, the Sabbath, faith, seeking out the kingdom of God, he demanded deep thinking before judging others, removing the plank from our own eyes before looking at the speck in someone else's. So what does it all mean for us today? If we're honest, I think Jesus' interpretation of the Ten Commandments and the law overall seem to set a standard that we cannot possibly obtain. What's the point in presenting us with such lofty ideals if we cannot possibly come close to reaching them? The people of Israel, Christ's disciples, failed constantly. So how the heck are we supposed to cope? Surely we'd be much happier if we'd never heard about the commandments or the Sermon on the Mount or the raft of other demanding passages that Jesus teaches. Happier if we were left alone to just do the best we can. But I think we need to understand that it's not about struggling alone to live out what we believe. Trying to force ourselves to be so-called good Christians, striving to avoid doing the wrong thing or working hard to do good stuff. Christian discipleship is not just about the things we believe in or about the decisions we make. It is about a state of being. Jesus didn't just come to teach and then abandon us to try to live out that teaching. He came, he tells us, to live in us in order that he might make and mould us into what he teaches us we should be. Living a holy life does not lie in attempting to imitate Jesus, but in letting the perfect qualities of Christ show themselves, reveal themselves in us. Now that all may sound a bit bizarre, but his promise is that that is exactly what he will do if we allow him to do it. Just prior to his arrest and crucifixion, Jesus explains to his disciples what is about to happen to him and to them. In chapter 14 of John's Gospel, he promises that after his death, the Holy Spirit, the Counselor, the Spirit of Truth, will be given to them. And that he will then not just live with them, be alongside them somehow, but live in them. In chapter 15, he tells them that he is the vine and they are the branches. That if they remain in him and he in them, then and only then will they bear much fruit. Apart from him, he says, we can do nothing. But he promises that he will not leave us alone. In chapter 17, having said that he was about to leave the world and go back to the Father, he prays for himself, and then he prays for the disciples, and then he prays for future believers, for you and for me. People who believe in him through the disciples' message. Just as the Father is in him, Jesus, and he, Jesus, is in the Father, he prays that all of us might be one. Declaring that he's made the Father known to us, he then says that he will continue 
to make him known. A continuous process. Why? In order that the love God has for him, Jesus, may be in us and that he himself might be in us. In other words, Christ doesn't abandon us just out there somewhere after his resurrection waiting and watching to see if we can live up to his teaching. He is here in us, living in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. The purity that God demands of us is impossible unless Christ is in us. In acknowledging the absolute futility of trying to live out the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law on our own, we have to reach the point where we finally admit, Lord, I cannot even begin to do this without you. And we then accept the need to be reborn. Born, as Jesus tells Nicodemus early in John's Gospel, Nicodemus, a Pharisee who knew the law backwards, who was rooted in the law, was told he needed to be reborn, born of the Spirit as well as water, born afresh. And when that happens, we won't just be equipped to see the wood from the trees on ethical and moral issues. He will help us to look beyond the immediate to eternity. Give us a mind aware of the creation story of men and women as moral, social and spiritual beings and aware of the fall and of evil, the need to stand for and speak out truth. Transformed by his power, we will find that we can begin to live as Christ in the world, not simply strive to apply a bunch of rules and fail. Jesus doesn't just give us rules and regulations because he knows that nobody can make themselves pure by just obeying laws. So instead, he gives us his nature. He places himself within us as we are filled day by day with his Holy Spirit. That is what produces the fruit he talked about. What Paul lays out in his letter to the Galatians as the fruit of the Spirit. First, love which drives everything else, then joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. The gospel message is that we aren't alone as we do these things. By asking the Holy Spirit to fill us and constantly refill us, we will be able to bear the fruit that Jesus talks about, to love as he loves us, to show mercy and grace, and to live out the Ten Commandments as they were meant to be lived. And as always, today is a pretty good day to ask for that to happen in our own lives. Amen.